Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we continue to pour through through the 448-page Mueller report. We welcome June Grasso, co-host of Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. June, have you read all 448 pages yet? Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> it's, you know, and also we're going through it not in hard copy form, but on a computer. So it's sort of difficult to read. And we don't have the color coding we on the, the, color the website. Coding. The website and has And they went to not. such great lengths, the color coding. I know. I don't understand it. We just have the, the blacked out. But I, I'll tell you, it's it, what strikes me is that it is far different from what Attorney General William Barr painted, the picture he painted this morning in his press conference. He talked a lot about collusion and said that Trump, that it proved that there was no collusion. But Mueller on collusion notes that he did not try to prove collusion. So I thought it was kind of strange that word collusion has been thrown into this by President Trump, because as we've said many times, it's not a word a lawyer would use. A lawyer would use the word conspiracy. So it was odd that uh, that uh, AG Barr used that today. And and also, I mean, what strikes me immediately is the uh, the uh, that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, his interactions with the president, and that he almost came to the point of wanting to step down, packing his stuff up. It reminded me, it echoed Elliot Richardson, who stepped down when Richard Nixon asked him to remove special counsel Archibald Cox. And he said that he told the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, that Trump had asked him to do crazy I'll say stuff, and that he was leaving. So you have this context that really makes sort of rich what we already know the bare bones of. And to get his reaction, I'd like to bring in someone who who has uh, been a pro- was a prosecutor for many years. He is now the head of the white collar division at McCarter and English. That's Robert Mintz, former federal prosecutor. Bob, what do you from looking at this report? What do you see that either? Uh, supports what Attorney General Barr said or contradicts it? Well, June, I think that the press conference held by the Attorney General was a fairly full-throated defense of the president. I thought that it would have been more proper for this press conference to have outlined the process that he went through in redacting the report and, and in handing, uh, taking the information that he'd received from the special counsel and then passing that along to Congress and the public, as opposed to getting into the substance of it. I was also struck by the fact that he talked a lot about the sincere beliefs of the president, uh, really trying to get into the president's mindset and using that as a, uh, ad- he admittedly used that in reaching his decision that he believed that there was no obstruction of justice case because he said that because the president sincerely believed he had done nothing wrong, uh, that that sort of weighed in his favor in terms of uh, some of the conduct. And I think that's a fairly controversial statement to make, you know, merely because someone might be considered uh, paranoid and be looking at what's going on and feeling that he's being treated unfairly doesn't necessarily mean that they're not then trying to obstruct an investigation. I think that's really very much of an open question. Bob, the question I, I have 
going through my mind at, at, as I read this is the special counsel's office the and the people who worked there seemed to struggle with whether or not there was obstruction, and they decided to leave it to perhaps the Congress to decide that. But if this were a normal case and not a case where a president of the United States is being investigated for obstruction and cannot be indicted by Department of Justice guidelines, would this be the kind of case you would take to a jury and let the jury make this tough decision? Well, there's certainly a lot of evidence out there that I think a prosecutor could use to weave together an obstruction case. Uh, One of the things that the president's defenders have often said is that the president doesn't fully understand the way uh, separation of powers works. And certainly this president has crossed lines that had never before been crossed in, in terms of uh, reaching into what's going on with the FBI and with the Department of Justice. Um, I, I think this case could have been brought to a jury. And here I thought the most interesting statement that I've seen so far in this report on the obstruction of justice issue is that the special counsel wrote that with respect to whether the president can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his power under Article 2 of the Constitution, we concluded that Congress has the authority to prohibit a president's corrupt use of his authority in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice. So it answers the question, when Mueller decided not to reach a conclusion here, who makes that call? The Attorney General seemed to suggest that the call was then the, his to make as the, as the head of the Department of Justice, whereas Mueller seems to, be say, seems to be saying that that really is going to be Congress's decision. So there is a disconnect there between the way Mr. Mueller, Mr. Barr interpreted um, the decision by Mr. Mueller not to reach a conclusion and what Mr. Mueller decided to say in his report that it really is a question for Congress to decide rather than the Attorney General. Let's also talk about uh, Mueller's explanation of why he chose not to subpoena President Trump. He said he had enough evidence to, you know, to subpoena him, but also he had enough evidence that he didn't need to subpoena him. And it seemed to be based on the fact that it would take too long and he wanted to get this report out. But does that leave a lot to question if you don't have the testimony of the president? Yeah, it it does. I think he understood that that was going to be a long, uh, protracted fight, and ultimately there wasn't going to be much to be gained by getting that interview if the courts were were to force the president uh, to submit to an interview by the special counsel. I think they also felt that, based upon all the public statements that the president has made about this, that they more or less knew what his answers were going to be. Uh, And so at the end, it was really kind of a cost-benefit analysis. They decided that the time that it would take in order to try to force that interview was really not worth it. They had enough answers. And really, uh, as I said a minute ago, the president really has got on record when so many of these issues that have been identified by Special Counsel Mueller as potential areas of obstruction. Thank you so much, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Lisa? June Grasso of Bloomberg Politics Policy, Power and Law. Thank you so much uh, for that. We are continuing our coverage of the 448-page report from Special Prosecutor uh, Robert Mueller. We're going to take a look at Honeywell. Honeywell shares climbed the most in eight months after reporting that sales had surged 
spurring the company to raise its full-year guidance despite a global manufacturing slowdown. To help us kind of break down what we saw from Honeywell this quarter, we welcome back Karen Ubelhart. Karen is a senior industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So a pretty darn good quarter. I saw that the organic growth rate for Honeywell was 8%. I can't remember the last time we saw that type of growth from one of your industrial companies. Yeah, no, that it was it was a much better than expected. And it was in uh, three of the four businesses grew eight to nine percent. Real surprise. The biggest surprise was building products where they got rid of the home um, automation business because they didn't want to compete with Amazon, etc. Um, the buildings products business is growing at nine percent, largely due to new product launches. His top priority is growing organic growth. And I think we're actually starting to see some of that happening. So here's my question. How much is this a Honeywell idiosyncratic story and how much does this indicate that we are seeing a stronger pace of growth around the world? I think a lot of it's Honeywell. I mean, um, aerospace is very strong. It was 8% against a 10% comp, but aerospace is, is strong for everyone. But the building te- b- business and the um, uh, safety products business are both Honeywell driven. They did a acqui- big acquisition in the safety business. They've done a lot of new products in both and they're both growing 8 to 9%. So that's Honeywell. So how how exposed is Honeywell to kind of what's happening in China, trade negotiations in, in terms of their global businesses? Well, they said China was down um, a, a little bit, actually. And, and what's interesting about their guidance is they didn't raise the second half. And a lot of people pressed them on that because growth is so good. But they are worried. They're hedging their bets for a, glo- you know, a little bit slower global growth. So when you take Honeywell out of it, they think like the core economic growth is going to be slower in the second half globally. And uh, they're hedging their bets. Can you give us a sense of the breakdown of the geographic distribution of Honeywell's business? Um, you know, you know, China's um, a decent size for them, but it, it's still like seven, eight percent. It's still pretty, pretty low, but it's a good grower. Um, the U.S. is in the 40s and Europe is in the 20s. And, you know, so it's Europe might be up to 30, I think. But so I guess I'm wondering, is there a big uh, divergence between the U.S. and the performance there versus the rest of the world? Well, interestingly, Europe is not as bad so far um, that as people expected, because those those numbers, the PMI and GDP numbers do not look good. But, you know, it's whole it's holding up. They're getting, you know, mid single, low mid single digit growth there. Europe, U.S., of course, is the, the growth engine right now, although there's concerns about the second half. And then Asia's growing. Um, China is, is weak as a trade. So, But overall, a lot of this is product-driven, I think. It's interesting. I was looking through the report, and I see that the surging e-commerce helped drive a 10% improvement in Honeywell's SPS yes. warehouse automation. So there's an Amazon play here for Honeywell, right? Yeah, I mean, they did a large acquisition, one of their largest ever in warehouse automation, a company called in, um, Intelligrated. And it's growing like 15% against 15%. You know, it's 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 growing extraordinarily well. And uh, then they did another uh, uh, automation, warehouse autom- automation business in Europe. So they're growing that business. And it is, a, it's, it's, you know, double digit, nice solid double digit growth. Yes, that is. Is e-commerce, yeah. That. So, it's the Amazon play. There's, yeah. You can make an Amazon play on anything, Lisa. Can you on anything? I'm going to challenge you okay. on that. I'm going to find something and see what you can come up with. Uh, you know, I got to say, Karen Ublahart, you say that this is an idiosyncratic issue. Honeywell, uh, their management actually doing a good job. Is there any takeaway that another big industrial company, <clears throat> GE, could take away from this to possibly <laughs> spur their growth? Well, it's really interesting because um, they're not. They didn't run out and buy things. They have so much money, and they scared to 
do M&A, but he really put the, uh, you know, the pedal to the metal on, on, on internal spending, not on capacity, on making new things. And that's, and then of course, they've been doing the efficiency game and margin improvement for a long time. I mean, the, 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 you know, 10 plus years of Dave Cody was about, let's get respectable margins. He did that, although there's room to go. And now this guy's, let's get growing. And, so I, I see the stock, I've just put up the stock, uh, the five-year chart on the Bloomberg Terminal and Honeywell's, you know, looks on a five-year basis that it's high here, uh, you know, up another 20-some-odd percent this year. Maybe did they use, start thinking about using their stock for acquisition currency? Uh, you know, they won't because they're sitting on they're sitting on 10, 11 billion in cash and another 7 billion in debt capacity because their leverage is pretty low. So I don't think they will. In fact, they're, they're buying back uh, a ton of stock because they don't know what to do with all this money. So um, I don't think they would use stock. This is really interesting to me that they spent their money on actually making stuff. Are we starting to see companies get rewarded by shareholders for deploying their cash into R&D? Well, it's funny because 3M always gets paid for being in R&D and ITW, I mean, paid in terms of margins, outstanding margins. And there is a payback on that. I don't think people spend enough time noticing that um, just across the board, but they will notice the organic growth going up. And and, uh, so I think they will, they are getting rewarded for that. So can we, I mean, you think about your industrial coverage, you cover these big diversified manufacturing companies, these big agricultural guys that make you know, the deers, the, so on and so forth. Given that we're in year 10 of this cycle, where, like when your companies, when they get orders, they get big orders. People are buying submarines or they're buying tractors or they're buying, you know, big stuff. Again, 10 years into the cycle, are we still seeing decent demand globally for a lot of your industrial companies? Yeah, you know, it's been a weird cycle because it, my cycles are usually in industrials are usually boom bust, you know, and we we didn't really have boom. I mean, we had in certain cyclical markets we did, you know, um, but it, it's been a long cycle, but it's been sort of moderate um, growth, uh, you know, with some blips up and down. But so it, it's usually a ramp up and a ramp down. And so um, it's been long, but it's more like a slow and steady rather than and a um, real robust. So I think there is going to be slower growth. Um, you know, and I think we're talking low single digits. We're, you know, we're not uh, talking high, high um, single digits as we have been looking in, in uh, overall growth for these companies. But I still think we're going to see growth. Just lastly here, I'm wondering who is Honeywell beating out in terms of competition? In other words, who are they taking share away from if this is not a story just about generally strong economic growth globally? Building products would be like a Johnson Controls, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Emerson to some degree. And then in SPS, it's a lot of technology companies. Um, Danaher is a small business they compete in, but it's a lot of smaller technology companies, actually. Karen Ubelhart, thank you so much for joining us on Honeywell. Some good numbers, stock trading up. Karen Ubelhart, senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covering all things industrial, all things middle America. Uh, she joins us on Bloomberg 1130 Studios. Let's bring in Jacob Frankel, who is a former federal prosecutor with an independent counsel who is uh, familiar with writing such reports that are delivered to Congress. He is now a partner at Dickinson Wright. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start first with the attorney general's press conference. What did you glean from the tone of that and sort of the nature of how this investigation is being spun from a partisan level on both sides? I actually tried to separate out the partisan component of the 
press conference and focus on what was the substance of what he was saying about the process of the investigation. And I was actually somewhat refreshed um, by his decision to focus on process because the biggest concern in what was going to be coming out of this report, what would the redactions look like, was really a focus on who ultimately was making the decisions, not only in terms of the report itself, but what would be reported and how it would be reported. And I know, you know, to, to your point about my having been part of an independent counsel, you know, there always was a lot of deference, you know, to the career prosecutors. I found refreshing uh, Attorney General Barr's reference to that specifically, that it was the career prosecutors in the Department of Justice and that he and Rod Rosenstein disagreed with some of the premises that were that were established by uh, by Special Counsel Mueller and his team, but nevertheless deferred to them. So I found very helpful, you know, that reference to the level of deference. And when I, as with all of us, we're just beginning to look at the report. When I look at the report, you know, we're really talking about a robust narrative because the other point that I was looking for was, is this going to be a spin news conference as it has been, you know, as was sort of projected? Or was this going to be sort of laying the groundwork for a report because, again, what I was waiting for, which is why I have sort of yet to have been exercised by a lot of the findings, is a lot of the you know, expert commentators have spent the last two years speculating as to what would be the evidence. Up until now, the only evidence that I've been able to discern is what has come out, what has actually been published in the indictments. So now that we get a report that more robustly talks about the findings, to me, this is really the first opportunity to see what the evidence actually has revealed. So, Jacob, uh, Special Counsel Mueller uh, in the report suggests that Congress could take action on at least 10 instances where the president sought to interfere with the probe. What do you think Congress will do? How aggressive do you think they'll be? That's a great question, and I think what you're—I think what we're really talking about there is deference to the language of what is the standard for impeachment: high crimes and misdemeanors. And of course, as we know from you know from two years of discussion in this and 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 a lot of the narrative, the term of what is a misdemeanor really is somewhat unclear. And I and I interpret that to be a you know a reference to Congress being able to make a determination independently that even without an affirmative finding of conduct that would rise to the level of criminality, that is that there being specific intent, which to me is the type of issue that would actually be the determinant if I were trying to decide whether this would or would not be presented to a, uh, you know, in, in trial, indicted, and to a jury. On the other hand, Congress has the authority to, a, to apply a lesser standard in determining what constitutes a misdemeanor. So what I read that to mean that if Congress really wants to do so, it has the authority to begin impeachment proceedings based on the evidence that's actually narrated in the report. Whether it chooses to do so, that is a political decision. That's a pretty big statement, saying that basically they do have enough to start impeachment, even if it isn't necessarily uh, a criminal act that could be prosecuted 
otherwise. One thing that I'm curious about from your perspective going forward, are we gleaning any information about the nature of what the Mueller uh, investigation referred out to other prosecutorial offices? I'm thinking the Southern District or the Eastern District. I, I think I'm not far enough into the report to make that determination, but I certainly think by the nature of the redactions and the uh, and the efforts by Attorney General Barr to protect um, the you know the the referrals and the and the content of referral related information, um, I think we may be able to discern some of what really is the basis for the, you know, for the referrals. Um, but in terms of beyond what has already been referred, I don't know that we can. But I also think that we have to be mindful that, you know, we're taught, unlike the independent counsel statute under which I lived, here everything has been conducted within the framework of the, of the Department of Justice. So as we know from just our conversations over the years in the context of white-collar cases, one case will spawn another. So as, you know, as grand juries, as prosecutors, as the FBI continue to look at evidence and gather information and possibly additional cooperation, we can still see the spawning of further related cases. So, Jacob, from your perspective, your experience, are you surprised or disappointed or dismayed that uh, Mr. Mueller did not choose to opine on the obstruction uh, issues? I'm actually not well, you know, I'm I'm not surprised, given that he has actually laid out the evidence and has stated that based on the evidence that was presented, it was sufficiently ambiguous, at least with respect to intent, to enable him to reach a conclusion, because that is the exact type of deliberation that that career prosecutors and even non-career prosecutors are supposed to engage in in making in making an ultimate char- charging decision. So I think by laying out the evidence and not expressing an opinion so as not to color or otherwise influence the decision that ultimately could be made by a charging body, which in this case would be a deference to Congress to undertake that role if it were to choose to to do so, I think he really did strike the appropriate balance based on the evidence that he had developed. Jacob, thank you so much. Jacob Frankel uh, is a former federal prosecutor with an independent counsel, now a partner at Dickinson Wright. We're monitoring markets in one very active area has been the marijuana stocks. Pot stocks surging today after Canopy Growth agreed to buy acreage holdings for $3.4 billion. This is a massive cross-border cannabis deal uh, that is conditional on the U.S. eventually legalizing pot for recreational use. Uh, joining us now to talk about this is Christine Oram. She's a Canadian cannabis and equity reporter for us here at Bloomberg uh, in Toronto. So, Christine, can you just give us a sense, why is this particular particular deal, Canopy buying acreage, such a big deal? 
Well, it's the first major cross-border deal the cannabis industry has seen, and it's structured in a very complex and interesting way. So basically, um, Canopy is going to pay $300 million up front, but the remainder of the transaction, the rest of that $3.4 billion, won't happen uh, until if and when the U.S. legalizes cannabis at the federal level. Uh, So essentially, the deal is set to expire in about 2027 if that doesn't happen. So these two companies are making a bet that sometime between now in 2027, um, at which point we will have had another whole presidential term and a half, uh, pot will be legalized and therefore they'll be able to truly close this transaction. But in the meantime, they're very restricted in what they can do because of that federal illegality. So you can kind of see that uncertainty in the way the shares are reacting today. Uh, reacting today, acreage was initially up 21%, but now it's only up about one and a half percent. So clearly shareholders are still trying to digest this and figure out exactly what it means for the company. So, Christine, this sounds kind of like a call option on buying this company, you know, kind of a multi-year call option. What are the where are we in terms of the federal legalization process in the United States for marijuana? Well, there are a lot of bills that are currently working their way through various congressional committees. Um, There's the two main ones being the Safe Banking Act, which would essentially open up uh, banking to cannabis companies across the U.S. Currently, uh, very few banks will work with these companies because they're worried that they could get into trouble around money laundering or other federal issues. And so many of them have to pay their employees and their taxes in cash, which has been a very awkward and kind of semi-dangerous proposition for some of them. So that's one. And the other is the States Act, which would essentially say that if the federal government will take a hands-off approach and let the states make their own decisions on legalization. So essentially, if that happens, most people say that's equivalent to federal legalization, and that would probably be enough to get this deal done. Uh, The House seems very open to uh, working on and passing these deals. I think the more difficult proposition will be getting them through the Senate. Well, this is really interesting that this deal is conditional on the legalization of marijuana because Acreage specializes in medical marijuana use, right, which has Mm -hmm. been more widely legalized throughout the state. So I'm wondering what this says about the business prospects of companies that specialize in medical marijuana use. Is their future really conditional on recreational use? Well, I think, I mean, there's an assumption that medical use is more politically palatable, and you see that with acreage. I mean, it has former U.S. House Speaker John Boehner on its board. It has former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney on its board. So these are political heavyweights who have a lot of contacts and clout on both sides of the border. Um, And and clearly, they wouldn't be uh, on this company's board if they didn't see real prospects for legalization. And they've both come out, these are two people who were pretty opposed to the idea of legalization in the past, and they've come out and said what they're really, um, the reason they support acreage and what they can really get behind is the idea of medical use for, you know, people like veterans who are struggling with PTSD, for example. So the fact that you have people of that caliber getting behind this, people who used to be opposed to legalization, does indicate that I think there's there's a real prospect for um, medical approval probably before uh, recreational approval at the federal level. So, Christine, what's been some of the early feedback from some of the states that have uh, legalized marijuana? I'm thinking Colorado, for example. Is it Have they seen a big pickup in demand and sales and usage? 
definitely over time in, in demand and sales. Um, Canada is in the very early days of legalization up here. We just legalized in October. And all of the states that have legalized in Canada as well have gone through uh, initial supply shortages. It's like the companies uh, haven't been able to produce enough to, to keep up with demand and didn't really know what demand was going to look like. So once those supply shortages get worked out, which usually takes uh, a year or two at the state level, that's what we've seen, uh, then they hit sort of a steady state uh, set of demand where essentially, you know, there's still some people using the black market. And for the most part, um, from, from what I've read, it's people who were previously uh, using black market sources who have converted to the legal market, not necessarily getting a lot of new users in. Um, but we'll see if that changes in Canada over time as we get more supply uh, in stores. We're currently speaking with Christina Oram. She's Canadian cannabis and equity reporter for Bloomberg. And we are awaiting comments from President Trump, who will be speaking at a Wounded Warrior project. It will be his first comments uh, publicly made after the Mueller report, press conference at least, uh, by Attorney General, uh, the Attorney General. Uh, so, Christine, I want to get your sense of what the business case is for a big merger, for consolidation in marijuana firms, right? I mean, my, my question is, is the big concern that Naltria Group or Philip Morris is going to get into the business and just absolutely dominate because they already have the distribution networks? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, Canopy is an interesting illustration because they currently have a major investment from Constellation Brands, the alcohol company that makes Corona and Modelo beer. Um, and they're also now pursuing this cross-border transaction. So uh, it indicates that I think a lot of these really large Canadian-based cannabis companies, and, can and Canopy is the biggest cannabis company in the world uh, with a market value of about $20 billion or close to it now, um, you know, I see that they have to be in the U.S in the future to really dominate globally. I mean, Canopy has, isn't just in Canada, it has operations uh, in Europe, Latin America. Um, they're really, they become a truly international company, but without that American presence, it's very difficult to, to generate, uh, you know, real brand revenue and those margins that come from the U.S. consumer market. And so that's the case for the cross-border transactions. We haven't seen many of them because of federal illegality, but I suspect this will kind of form the, the impetus and the structure that others can follow to do other similar deals in the future. Christine Oram, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Christine Oram covers the can Canadian cannabis and equity business for us here at Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.